uh, I would preach your gospel, um, the gospel of Christ uh, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead uh, to assure us of, of eternal uh, life with you, Lord, uh, a resurrection in the last days. Um, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to that message over and over and over again. Help me to stay out of the way of, of what your word has to say. But, but Lord God, I pray that um, the folks here would hear from you, uh, that, that they would hear your word preached and know you more, that your spirit would fill their hearts and their minds. Uh, those who are watching online, Lord, I pray that they would, uh, they would hear from you, Lord, that, that uh, your spirit would, would be in the word this morning and that it would not come back empty. Um, in Christ's name, amen. So uh, many years ago, when I was in high school, uh, so like 10, uh, <laughs> I, uh, we used to move around a lot. Uh, and in fact, actually, because I uh, attended, or because my dad was in the Air Force, we would move regularly. And, and um, I started going to church in, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And then after about a year of that, we moved to uh, Virginia. And uh, we attended one church, and I actually, uh, you know, I, I attended with my folks there, and I started going to uh, Bible study uh, at another church uh, across town from where I, I lived, my house. Um, and and that, that Bible study, I went there for, I don't know, three years. We, we lived in that area quite a while. It was a long time uh, by my stretch of things, you know, it's, I know three years for y'all. Most of you all lived in the same place your whole lives. But for me, it was, you know, three years is a huge amount of time. And so I went to Bible study with these kids. And, like, we, uh, you know, I'm a high school kid. I'm very immature. And I, I know a lot's changed. So it's hard to imagine me being really immature. Um, but after several years of going to that Bible study, I got it in my head. Because all of these kids had gone to this church their whole lives together. And I got it into my head that, that nobody would miss me if I stopped showing up. Just... I don't know why I was I was insecure or something, and I I just stopped going, you know. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the Bible study. Actually, I loved it, and I learned a whole lot. Like it was a huge part of my uh, spiritual formation in my my junior high and high school years was um, attending this Bible study, and and it was you know it was the kind of deal where you would sit down and go verse by verse through the scriptures, and I, you know, it it, it answered a lot of questions I had and. You know, there were a lot of people there who I was, I was close with. But for whatever reason, I said, I'm just not going to go anymore because I want to see if anybody will notice or if anybody will say anything. And, and amazingly enough, no one did. Um, and I, for years, I thought, well, they, that, was a, that was a jerk move on their part. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I was working in church that I realized that... Um, it wasn't a jerk move on their part. It was, it was a jerk move on my part. Because all these people who would say, well, you know, we appreciate that you're here. Or we, you know, we love you. Or you're a member of our family here or whatever. And I said, I don't know that I believe them, so I'm going to test. I'm going to see what happens. So rather than taking their word for it, I, I tested the relationship. When I worked in um, mental health, you would see folks who would do this all the time. They would... They would never believe that anybody loved them, and so they would test their relationships over and over and over again. Like, like you know, these, these husbands who would be, or, yeah, husbands who would be, you know, 
standoffish to their wives to see if they would come back or they'd, they'd leave and see if their wives would really care if they were gone or, or wives who would yell at their husbands and, and, you know, be really obstinate and difficult to see if they would come back, to see if they would seek them out. And, and it's just a really immature, like broken way of approaching relationships. Um, and I'm starting with this because we are in, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew. Um, I'm sort of jumping the gun here. Usually we do Old Testament all the way through the end of summer, but I'm a week early. Uh, we're going to be starting on New Testament this week. Um, we're going to be looking at the temptation of, of Christ in the desert. And, and we've actually done this the last couple of weeks, but we've focused on the Deuteronomy side of it where Christ, his quotations came from. Um, this week we're going we're gonna to focus on uh, Jesus' words and Jesus' encounter. And, and essentially what he's tempted to do in this text. And so, like, if you want to have the summary, right, here's the summary in advance. What Jesus is about to be tempted to do is test, Right? Put God's word to the test. Is he really telling the truth? Is this really true? Um, and, and so, like, here we are. And actually, before we, before we jump directly into the text, I'm going to back up. I, I, this morning I, I realized I had made a mistake by not putting this part in the slides. And so you're just going to have to take my word for it. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> this is what the text says. Though there are Bibles if you want to open them up and have a look. Uh, we're starting in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, verses uh, 13 on through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Uh, but Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus is, thus is it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, and so what we're seeing happening here as a starting point is like right before we get to our section, Jesus goes to be baptized. And the Spirit of God descends from heaven, and you see the Trinity in full display, which is pretty awesome, right? Um, there is one God, but in this moment we hear the Father speak, and we see the Spirit as a dove, and we see Christ being baptized, and like, like all of this stuff is happening, and God announces, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so God makes a very powerful statement, right? He makes a very affirming and like, like definitive statement. And actually it is a statement that defines how we understand Christ. Like how we understand who Jesus was and what he did. And so this is a big deal. Um, over the years there have been a lot of efforts. Like one of the first things that disappears um, when you fall into, like you look at the big heretical groups, the people who have sort of contorted the scriptures to turn them into something they aren't. The Trinity is one of the first things that folks attack, Right. Um, and that's been since the very early days of the church. And this passage is always like sort of a, a puzzle for folks to solve. Like, how do I make it so that Jesus isn't actually God's son? And they'll sort of mess with that. But, like, it's pretty straightforward, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Um, immediately, 
So when we pick up in verse 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is, sort of goes without saying, right? I, you give me about 45 minutes of not eating and I'm ready to eat, right? Like we live in a very comfortable world. 40 days of fasting is a long time. It is a very difficult period of time to fast. So like Christ, it's actually oftentimes a marker for the beginning of ministry. You see it throughout the scriptures where people will fast for 40 days before they go into ministry or before they start a new ministry or they start a new chapter in their lives. Um, and, and so Christ is fasting, preparing to begin his ministry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to turn into loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right. So this is the last couple of weeks we kind of covered this. Christ quoted Deuteronomy, right? And Deuteronomy, as you recall, like if you were here those weeks, if not, you know, now you're going to hear it again. Um, Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons that Moses preached at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. So Israel's wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and they're about to go into the promised land, and Moses gets up and he preaches a series of sermons, and like Deuteronomy is all of those sermons put together, right? And so um, Jesus starts quoting um, what Moses said about leaving the desert and going into the promised land, right? Um, there's a parallel here, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, and we're talking about it again. Um, Jesus' time in the desert is Jesus, uh, Jesus following the path of Israel and doing it better. Got it? So, like, where Israel, um, you know, they went into Egypt into slavery. Christ went into Egypt, you know, like, in exile for a period of time. And, like, here we see Jesus wandering around in the desert and fasting and, and dealing with hunger and dealing with, like, like trying to devote himself to God, like, in preparing for this ministry thing and, and in advance of being tempted. And, like, he is doing what Israel did. Only Israel just blew it over and over again, right? They actually didn't have to be in the desert but just a few weeks because they just had to cross it. And when they got there... Like, actually, not even just when they got there, on the way to getting there. And then when they finally arrived, they blew it over and over and over again. Like, Moses steps away for five minutes, and they're building a golden calf and worshiping it. They arrive in the Promised Land, having seen God wipe out the army of Egypt, having seen God part of the Red Sea, having seen God feed them with manna in the desert. Um, and they arrive at the border, and the first thing they say is, oh, wow, those guys are way too tough. We can't go, you know, like, we'll get slaughtered. And God's like, you know... You people don't trust very well. And so you're going to hang out in the desert and learn a little bit about trust. Go to your room, except in this case your room was the desert, which to hear my children describe it, their room is the desert too. So having tempted Christ with bread, and like what we talked about with that was um, that in times of hunger and in times of abundance, we have to trust that God is in charge. We have to trust that God is taking care of us. And now we move on, like his, which is what Christ said. He said, look, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, listen, it's not just food. I have to trust God's promises to take care of me. And God will take care of me, even if it seems like he won't. Right? And I've got to trust that God is taking care of me, even when I have way too much stuff. So now, the next ploy that the devil takes. So we jump into verse 5. Um, 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, there are a couple of possibilities as to what's going on here. It's probably the case. Like, it's possible that there's this, like, supernatural jump to Jerusalem and this, like, high point in the temple. It's also possible that it was a vision. It's possible a lot of things. A million gallons of ink have been spilled over arguing about whether or not this actually happened physically or... And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't really matter. Okay? (laughs) The long and short of it is Jesus is being tempted, whether he's being tempted in a vision or, like, physically brought there for a temptation. Like, eh, to argue about that is to miss the point. Now, on the highest point of the temple, um, it's probably Solomon's portico. Um, Solomon's portico was part of a wing, like... uh, um, describe this like pinnacle or the highest point is how it's usually translated and it literally the word used there is wing right and it would be the point of the wing so like the highest place and the idea was that if you go to the south end of the temple there's a collection of porches and little porticos and areas that you could go and hang out in the shade right Um, the highest one was solomon's portico Now, Solomon's portico, if you stood at the very highest point, which is the assumption that's probably what's going on here, if you stood at the very, very highest point and looked off the edge into the valley below, the Kidron Valley, it was, depending on who you trust on the word of it, right, it could have been 350 feet, it could have been 450 feet. My guess is it's somewhere in that neighborhood, right? Um, to give you a little bit of scale, because I don't know, like, I sort of know what 40 feet is, and I kind of know what 20 feet is, um, and I, I have a rough idea that 6 feet is a little taller than me. But, like, you know, 400 feet, I don't know what that is. Uh, 450 feet is a 45-story building. Right? I mean, it's a big building. So you stand up on it, and you look down into the Kidron Valley, and it is the rough equivalent of a 45-story building. There are none of those in Big Sandy or Great Falls. Potentially in all of Montana. (laughs) Uh, But but we... So picture up there at this highest point in the temple, looking down into the lowest point in the area. And in fact, actually, I have to look at the quote specifically because I can't remember it. Um... Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian slash trader, uh, and he wrote about the Jewish people. And in his, like one of his books, he wrote um, that uh, inasmuch that if anyone looked down from the top of the battlements or down both of the, both the both those altitudes, meaning from the top of the temple to the ground, and then from the ground down into the Kidron Valley, he would be giddy while, he, while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. Meaning like what Josephus said was, you stand up there and you look down and it is so far you can't see the bottom, right? And so Jesus is there with Satan on the top of this highest point. Now, why does that matter? Well, um, it is possible, possible, right? Um, there's a rabbinical tradition, like the rabbis argued about what the Messiah would be like and everything else, and there's this tradition amongst the rabbis that was very well known where they believed that when the Messiah showed up, he would show up at the, like on the roof of the temple. And that's how you would know it was the Messiah. He'd be up on the roof. And so Satan took him to this place where, like, hey, you're on the roof. And if you jump, which is the next verse, 
If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So now, he's up at the top of the temple, and he says, listen, throw yourself off. Right? Because if you're really the Son of God... He's going to basically have the angels catch you. He's not going to let you splat on the bottom like God would never do that, right? Now, there are a few things going on here. First off, if you are the Son of God, if we flash back, same thing was started in the previous verse, right? If you're the Son of God, turn these, bread, or these stones into bread. Um, and then if we go back into the previous chapter, what does God say? You are my son, or this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so what Satan does right away is he calls into question what God said about who Jesus is. If you are really the son of God, if he is really telling the truth, if this is really the case, and actually you can almost hear him say, did God really say, right? You know that one? Did God really say not to eat off that tree? Did God really say, and a lot of times we encounter this, where temptation in life comes down to a question of whether or not we're going to trust that God is telling the truth. In this case, what he's saying is, is God really telling you the truth about this? Is he really going to follow through? Are you really going to believe what he has said? Now, that doesn't seem like a huge temptation. I, uh, years ago, um, when I worked at the children's home, we did a high ropes course. Like, we had a high ropes course, and I did a training to, like, rescue people off of it and to facilitate mental health groups and all that. And one of the very first things I did before I climbed to the very top of any, like, uh, any pole or post, and, you know, you're 40 or 50 feet up in the air, is I would sit down on the rope just to make sure. You know Why? Because it's a good idea to test the rope at 5 feet 11, thank you, (laughs) 5 feet 11. It's a better idea to test it there than at 40 feet, right? Because at 5 feet 11, I look stupid. At 40 feet, I look broken. Um, And so testing, you know, we almost think, well, of course it makes sense you would test some things, right? But to test God is a different animal. And he actually quotes scriptures. He says he will command his angels. This is Psalm 91. I'm going to read it to you. We're not going to like dig into it real deep, but I want context here so you all know what's going on. Um, if you say the Lord is my refuge you, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of his ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the lion and the great serpent. By the way, reading this verse, it sort of makes me think of that. uh, There's like 80 of them in America, okay? So, like, there's this idea you watch documentaries and, like, sensationalist nonsense, and they make it seem like there are thousands of Christians who do this, but there aren't, right? There's like 80 people, and they all live in the mountains in Tennessee and and all that. Like, like, but there, there are folks who... They handle snakes. Say, well, look, God said that poisonous serpents won't kill us. And so in the middle of worship, I'm going to carry around this snake. And amazingly, a lot of them die. You know why? Because poisonous serpents won't hurt you doesn't mean 
go pick up poisonous snakes, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean jump into the mess. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, did I lose my passage? What happened? Oh, uh, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. And he will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him with long life, and I, I will satisfy him with the show of my salvation. So what Satan is saying is, look, God promised all of this stuff, so why not try it out? Right? Why not try it out? I... I there's a great movie, and I, it's kind of sacrilegious, so I'm not encouraging you to watch it, but I really like it. It's uh, uh, Bruce Almighty um, is this movie where uh, uh, Bruce is played by Jim Carrey, um, and he is given all of God's power in a little corner of the world because he says that he could run the world better, right, which is, I mean, most fallen people say that. And basically, he uses God's power to completely wreck the world. But the very first thing he does is he wanders around and he just does stupid things to see if he can. Right? He's like, well, look, I'm going to walk on water. Let's see if I step through this puddle. And I'm going to, you know, do this. I'm going to do that. And it's all dumb. Right? He turns water into wine. Hey, watch me do this like, like a magician. Um, he tests it out. And, and at the end of the day, like, it's easy to put God to the test. It's easy to put God to the test and say, well, look, God said he would do this. Maybe I should see if he means it. And it seems harmless, right? But at the end of the day, to approach God in this manner is a lot like me and my Bible study. If they really mean that they care about me, I should not show up and see if they, you know, see if they actually care. And basically, by doing that, I'm announcing, I don't care that much about you. I care so little about this relationship that I'm going to play with it to see what will happen. In this case, it is, are you sure God is going to do it? Why not force him to? Why not force God to act in a way to demonstrate his power? There's a possibility. Now, this is like there are a lot of possibilities. And I imagine like, like I, I think the point of this is about putting Jesus in the same place as Israel. Right? I think that's the point. But there's a possibility that there's a second layer to this. Where the rabbi said, hey, the Messiah is going to show up on the roof of the temple. Right? Now, any... Anybody could show up on the roof of the temple, right? I'm guessing it's not that hard to get up there because, you know, because it's probably not. People went on the roof of things all the time in ancient Israel because a lot of times it was cooler up there than everywhere else. Um, so it's probably not a big deal. However, if you threw yourself off and angels caught you, that would be an attention grabber, wouldn't it? Not only could you force God's hand, you could... Shortcut the whole process, right? I mean, if you can do anything, why not? Like, why go to the cross? Why, like, like have God pour his wrath out on you if you could skip a few steps? Because, like, the rabbis will see up there. The priests will see up there, and they'll be like, what's this moron doing on the temple? Oh, my gosh, he jumped off. Oh, my gosh, he's flying now. Nope, those are angels carrying him. He's probably from God. Shortcut. 
I love shortcuts. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Jesus is again quoting Deuteronomy, and I think it's no coincidence that he's quoting Deuteronomy because um, he's in the desert. He's doing Israel's test, and he is doing it right. So we're going to jump back and see what Moses said. We're going to do it real quick, okay? I know I'm kind of pushing the time here, but, but this is cool. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is the Shema, right? Like it is the most important thing that Jews would say. They would say it every day, all the time, like, like you know, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These commands that I give you today will be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road and when you lie down and when you get up. So Moses is saying, talk about this stuff regularly. Make sure your kids know it. Make sure you're saying it out loud all the time so it is right in front of you. It needs to be such a big deal that you tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. And actually, if you go to Israel today, they have these little things nailed to every door with that phrase. Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right there on every door. It's weird. It's everywhere. Um, sometimes it's a little scroll. If you go to the Wailing Wall, you'll see all of this Hasidic Jews there. And you know what they have? Little boxes tied to their foreheads. In fact, actually, I was on an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean, and at like, you know, four in the morning or whatever time it was, I woke up, and all the Hasidic Jews were walking up and down the aisle in a big circle with these boxes tied to their foreheads. And they were praying this prayer because they took it very seriously. You know why? Because we have to remember this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Live by it. When the Lord your God brings you into this land, so this is Moses talking, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you the land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Fear the Lord God and serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Manasseh. Now, that's really important. We all recognize that, right? Do not put the Lord your God to the test, which is what Jesus is quoting. As you did at Manasseh, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. So what Moses says, he gets up and he's like, listen, all of this stuff is a big deal. Believe it's true, trust it, and don't test it like you did at Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is this weird Hebrew word. It means testing. 
Because what happened, and I'm actually going to skip over it. Um, I was going to read it, but we're kind of pushing time here. Um, what happened was, if you go back to Exodus 17, I recommend reading it on your own. It's kind of a cool account. Um, where in Exodus 17, they're walking through the desert, and the desert is hot. And it is also kind of dry, right? And so you got like a million people wandering around in this hot, dry climate. And the very first thing they do is the very first thing that my kids do whenever it's time for bed. I am thirsty and I want something to drink and I want something to drink now mind you at this point they have already been fed bread that appeared out of nowhere so God's feeding them God has parted the Red Sea and rescued them God made the firstborn of all of their enemies die including all their pets and their livestock and everything else like God is taking care of them in huge obvious and miraculous way there's no way they're going to doubt it at this point right no stinking way And they get there, and they're like, man, we're thirsty. And then they start complaining to each other. You know what? I bet God is going to let us die. I bet we're all going to die of thirst out here. I bet. And they start getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And all of a sudden, they're aiming that at Moses. And they're like, let's go kill that guy. He's such a jerk. He dragged us out of slavery. He saved us, rescued us, made us insanely wealthy in the process because everybody paid us to leave Egypt. That guy is at fault because I'm thirsty now. And so they start getting ready to go and kill Moses. And Moses turns and he's like, hey, God, help. (laughs) And God's like, all right, take your staff, go over there, pound it on the rock, and water's going to come out of it. And he did, and it did. And they're all happy. They're like, oh, look, God actually gave us water, which pretty much was going to happen anyway, right? Because God promised God promised. They didn't have to demand it. If they had just hung out and been thirsty and okay for a little while, God would have said, all right, well, guys, here's my plan. Here's your water. Right? It wasn't going to be the case that they weren't going to get it. Instead, they decided to murder Moses. And to hear my children talk at bedtime, they'd probably kill me if they needed to, just to get that glass of water. Um, Or vice versa. Um, And so... What happens is Moses steps away and he calls the land um, Manasseh and Meribah, which mean um, testing and quarreling. And it's a judgment on them. It's like embarrassing to them. And so when Moses gets up and he's doing this sermon, he's like, hey, remember, remember your failure at Manasseh. Remember what you did. Remember, God would have taken care of you, but you had to test him and you made clowns out of yourself. Do not do it again. Just trust that God is in control. And so, having failed that, Jesus faces the same thing. And Jesus does it without failing, without screwing up, without like, like dropping the ball. Like Jesus manages to do this without doing what they did. Because he turns, he says, listen, God said I'm a son. I'm a son. Like, God said it, and I trust him, and I believe him. Um, God said that he would take care of me, and I believe him. And that's enough. Um, I did not include the verse, and I'm kind of annoyed with myself. Uh, So what do we do with this? Because this is a big thing. First off, know um, that what we're being given here is an understanding of how a relationship with God operates apart from, like, the temptation that we encounter, right? Right? We trust that God is going to feed us. And we look for him like more than we look for the things of the world. 
Like, it's important to find bread, but it's more important to find God, right? It's more important. God will take care of you because he's promised. Does that mean you don't go to work? No. You still go to work, right? Unless you go into ministry and then you hang around. Um, <laughs> no one's awake. <laughs> I, I throw jokes in to see if people are awake or if I'm still funny. Um, <laughs> so you know, he starts out with, look, look for God first more than anything else, right? Um, you want to see marriage fall into trouble, like people who are married, you want to see if their relationships, like the thing that really begins to get in the way. Very, very common. One of the most common things that gets in the way of a healthy marriage is chasing after stuff that is not your spouse, right? Um, in fact, the number one cause of divorce in America is money. That's when husband does nothing but work and ignores his wife. That's when um, wife is more worried about financial security than husband. That is when, and then actually after that it is family, like your in-laws. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, if we pursue things that are not God first, if we pursue family, if we pursue money, if we pursue um, like satisfying our lust, if we pursue our greed, if we pursue um, you know, our comfort or whatever, we will inevitably fail in our relationship with God. Step number two is if we don't trust each other, you cannot have a relationship. You can't. You can't. Trust is fundamental to it. And so we trust God in everything, and we don't have to test him. We don't have to push the limit there. Um, the passage I wanted to include is uh, 1 Corinthians, actually. And um, in 1 Corinthians, what Paul talks about, he compares Christians to Israel. And he says, listen, you were baptized just like Israel. Israel walked through the Red Sea. They passed through the water, and they came out alive on the other side, just like you. And like God provided for them in all these ways. And he says, listen, don't test God like they did. Don't, like, indulge in sexual immorality. Don't pursue idols. Don't do all of these things because in doing that stuff, you're testing God. Well, how am I testing God if I'm, like, committing these sins? How am I testing God? I'm assured of grace. The most important fundamental promise that we receive in our faith is God's going to forgive you or God has forgiven you. In Christ, because Christ poured out his blood, because he was broken for you, you are forgiven. How do we trust God in those moments? Like, how do we trust the truth of that? We trust it's true, and we don't run after temptation, right? I, uh, when I worked in, in the rehab, I knew these guys would go out, get done being in treatment, and the very first thing they would do is they'd go around guys who were, like, getting high. Or they'd, like, go and hang out in a bar. Actually, I met a guy. He was, like, he was an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. And he's, we're talking about, like, oh, well, I finally got a job. Really? What are you doing? Working in a restaurant. Really? What kind of a restaurant? Uh, you know, just an ordinary restaurant. Really? Can you tell me more about it? Well, okay, so there is a bar, but I won't be working in the bar. And I'm like, so you're going to stand every day next to the bar. Because why? Well, I could probably fight it. I know I'm strong. I know I'm recovering. I know I'm this. I know I'm that. You know what happens if you go into your temptation? Eventually, you're going to fall into it. I walk past the pile of cookies on the counter enough times, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat them all. Right? (laughs) 
It is the truth. Temptation. The thing is, the closer you are to temptation, the more likely you are to fall in it. And so what Christ says to, or what Paul says, he says, listen, you were promised grace. You were promised forgiveness. Now trust it. And don't trust it by pushing it. Trust it by living it. Don't pursue temptation. Don't sin that grace may abound. Don't this, don't that. Follow Christ. Belong to Christ. Now, I could test the love that I have for my wife every day by going and hanging around with strange women. You think she would approve of that? No. I can test my love for God by putting myself in temptation, by committing sin after sin and knowing he's just going to keep forgiving me. Acceptable? No. I'm going to close in prayer because the kids are getting restless and everybody else is asleep. Um, My challenge for you today is to look at your life, to ask yourself this straight up. Is, is God's word something that you trust? And do you trust it in a way that, that prompts you to live in, in a different way? You know, are, are you pursuing Christ? Or are you wandering around knowing that he'll come get you when the time comes? Um, are you sinning knowing that grace will abound? Are you hiding from the truth of this? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, come to you this morning and, and just ask that you would be with us. Uh, ask that you would, uh, you know, I, I, I think I was all over the place today, and I know that you're able to speak despite me. Um, and I ask that folks would hear from you, Lord, that, that folks would have heard the, the words I had to say, the, the scripture preached and the gospel preached, and that they would have said, man, I'm, I'm pushing the limits here. I'm walking the line here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm testing God in these areas of my life. Um, I pray that you would give us grace and wisdom as, as we deal with that. In Christ's name, amen.